Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. We want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Today we're going to talk about how Muslim immigrant children in the United States have a really hard time accessing public education, and especially Muslim girls. And then we're going to talk about the history of Muslim women. Oh my gosh, those are very interesting topics. Yes. Let's get into it. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50% the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Episode 25, Muslim Girls and Their History. Okay. Boom. Brooke, Happy New Year. I know, you too. Happy 2021. Happy 2021. We have Although... been greeted with... Yeah. Stressful grant deadlines. Yes. We have some really big things coming up with... Very big things with coming With Remedial Hursery, and I don't... We have not really talked about it on the podcast. No. Of all the really cool things that you're doing. I know. And but, I kind of want to leave it, like, pending. Yeah. No. But we, we, more to go, come. People go to the website, you'll see... Yeah. YouTube channel coming. Yep. Blog posts coming. Yep. Lots of exciting things. I also... I. I feel like I've said this to you already, but I love the, like, A-team of women that you're assembling yes. for all this stuff. Like, we have Baller some, women. Oh, my God. These are, like, really kick-ass women that are, like, leaders in their industry. I mean, talk, Dr. Alicia gutierrez Oh, my God. She's amazing. Amazing. Dr. Barbara Tischler. I mean. Amazing. Amazing. Amazing women that are all in. They were like, yeah, of course I'll help you. Like, yep. what do you need? Which I think speaks volumes about who you are and what you're doing, but also, like, the road ahead that you're paving, people want to be a part of, which oh. is really cool. Well, we're paving. You're with me here. I mean, I get to ride. You I'm I'm on the wagon, but I'm definitely not riding the Oregon Trail. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means, because if you're in the wagon, like... You're I, going. I'm going, but... You are going to be part of the Donner Party, whether no. you want to or not. <laughs> I don't want my cows to get dysentery. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I want to be part of it. I just don't want to eat the people. Fair enough. Everyone makes choices. I'll eat the people. Do Wait, your... What? No, I, I just went down. This is a bad metaphor. Bring it back. I Bring blame it. you. <laughs> so sorry. I want to ride in any wagon that you're on. With this baller group of women that you're assembling, the board is awesome that you're creating for the nonprofit. I get to be there. I am a part of it. I'm on the board. Woohoo! Which is so cool. And like, I'm just, I don't know. It's amazing. You're doing some incredible work. And I'm really excited about what we get to share with our audience coming up of yes. what 2021 has in store. Because 2020 was really cool for the podcast. Yeah. And 2021 is going to be even better. I know. I the lineup that we have in store for this year is like blowing my mind. I'm very excited. Get ready. Yeah. But I did see a meme yesterday that I had to I'm share nervous. with you. And it was basically like, I've only been in 2021 for seven days and I already want my refund. My free trial is over. <laughs> <laughs> Which I just was like, yeah, where's the customer service yeah. line? So as a teacher, the last uh, day or so has been fascinating. And yeah. granted, I will tell everybody we're recording a little bit in advance of Monday's release. Yeah. So um, the raid on the Capitol, the terrorist was, was attack. Yesterday. Today is Thursday, but this is coming out on Monday. Has just happened. And so today in class, I processed that out loud with, you know, 40 students who are 
really concerned about the fate of democracy in our Which country. Which they should be, rightfully. Yep. That would be, I can't even imagine being in high school and trying to process that. I can remember being in high school trying to process 9-11, and it was the first time I heard the word terrorist. Yep. And I can remember trying the to figure out, like... The concept of a foreign terrorist is yeah. like, okay, well, they just hate America. Mean? Yeah, like, and a, like... These are people who live here yeah. who think that they're doing the right thing for our country. Yeah. And they just attacked our Capitol building. And the president and told them to Senate do it. buildings. Yeah, yeah like that. Like, I don't know what's happening. Yeah. yeah, it's hard to, it's been overwhelming. Right. Well, I was talking to another teacher and she was saying that she is very concerned about going back to school. She was very concerned about going back to school. Yeah. In, uh, interacting with her students and what that means you know how how is she like she's very nervous you know in schools we we pride ourselves on being able to negotiate tricky conversations with yeah. kids and how is she supposed to have this conversation about people like sure it's republican democrat fine these are trump supporters and that's a republican candidate or something and you're supposed to be open to all sides but th there's a line and you know i i am grateful to people like Mitch McConnell and other people who have at least said like okay there's a line you know like, yeah, like, like i was, was wondering too... with him where the line oh my gosh, was i was wondering with a lot of republicans where they were landing on this. And I also found a list of all of the Republicans who were trying to um, recount the votes in their states and things like that. And I'm like, you probably wouldn't be in office if the election was rigged, right? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. There's so many, like, basic questions where I'm like, wait, yeah. how are you elected then if the election was rigged? Right. And so it's one of those things where I'm like, they're all, anyone who's questioned this, this, process yeah is now being called to question right now it's well, this is your it's responsibility like you're in inciting this this riot because you're not giving clear facts right and you're using but the also, media to I manipulate mean, holy moly the last couple days as a social studies teacher yeah has been complete validation for the need for my job yes this and is education. what I do. Yeah. Like, holy God, people, social studies matters. Yeah. And I will add that in the last month, I found out that during COVID, they are not teaching social studies K to five in my, K to six in my school district, period. That or science. Because science and social studies apparently don't matter, matter in the elementary school level. And I, I, watching the news this week, I went... There's never been a year <laughs> on the planet that science and history have mattered more. I'm sorry. A global pandemic has taken over, and we are now asking you to take a vaccine. Science. And <laughs> your democracy has been threatened, and your capital has been taken down. History. <laughs> Let's go, people. Get like, on board. Where have you been? <laughs> It, that's just, I mean. Uh, it was a lot. That's but super frustrating, I'm, I'm really sure. grateful that you made the parallel, although there are obvious differences, but there there is a parallel here to be drawn between th the experience that students had on 9-11 of not really understanding what's going on. Total And ignorance. what happened this past week. And I want to transition to talking about Islam on that, on that note. Okay. Because... Um, you might remember that after 9-11, uh, many Americans had an awakening to the fact that Islam is... A religion. Um, a religion, first yeah. of all. Second of all, it is the second 
largest world religion. Right. Thirdly, there's a huge Muslim population in the United States, and especially here in New Hampshire. We Yeah, uh, we have New, a huge community. We have a huge community in Manchester and in other smaller New Hampshire cities. And um, and 9-11, um, I remember, and you might recall, seeing bumper stickers that said things to the effect of, all I need to know about Islam, I learned on 9-11. Whoa. Do you remember that? No. Yeah. So, but New I, Hampshire loves a good bumper sticker, so maybe it was just so different. <laughs> <laughs> Connecticut, we're a little more like our cars have value. <laughs> can can put that on my Porsche. No, no, no. The BMW doesn't no. doesn't get a bumper. Doesn't no bumper. No bumper stickers. Well, I'll a wicked, <laughs> wicked into a bumper stickers. And your vanity plates, good God. <laughs> I say ours now. There are vanity plates because I'm a New Hampshire resident. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> Anyways, well, so I don't remember seeing those, but I do remember a lot of it, like anti-Islam activity and, yeah, and, and actually and racist activity towards that, and it was just it was absurd. Hate crimes against Muslims yeah, skyrocketed after 9/11, and they actually continue. They gradually declined, and then around the election of Donald Trump, they went back up again. Oh, um, that's so weird. I know. That's, I, I know just, that's really I'm shocking like information. I'm so surprised. So I, yeah, I just wanted to you make just, sure like, you blew me away with a fun fact. Yeah. So, <laughs> I bring that up because today we're going to talk about Islam, and I brought on a wonderful guest. Um, her name is Suzanne Alabidi. Okay. And she and I, I want to tell you our story. Okay. We know each other. Okay. Personally. Well, I love that. Okay. So, Suzanne was, and this is both a story about Islam as well and, and, and the life of a Muslim immigrant, but it's also the story that many of our students who are bilingual experience. Suzanne is an incredibly smart woman, and she, uh, her husband, um, so she uh, got married and moved to the United States with her husband. And they okay. settled first in New Mexico and then moved here to New Hampshire. How old was she and, when she moved here? Um, I want to say 30s, maybe okay. maybe late 20s. But um, they, they moved to the United States, came to um, New Hampshire eventually after her husband got his doctorate. And he got okay. a job here at Plymouth State University in New Hampshire. And um, he was a professor, a math professor at the university here. And uh, in his role, he actually got all of his family members free classes. And so Suzanne started pursuing her doctorate because she was like, hell yeah, I'm doing this. (laughs) And so I met Suzanne along this journey, this life story, um, as she is pursuing her um, master's degree here in the United States. And so here's a woman who grew up in Jordan. Her family's Palestinian. Um, she is Sunni Muslim, which... There's a lot of different... There's a lot of different branches yeah. of Islam. Um, so if you're not familiar, the two major branches are Sunni and Shia. And the Sunni branch is the larger branch. Is and it still geo-focused of whether or not you're Sunni or Shiite? Um, it is not, uh, yes, yeah, definitely the geography plays, plays a big role. Yeah, like, isn't it, like, north and south? No, it's more like, Metro- well, Metropolitan rural? Mm, oh, I don't know about that. Oh. Um, but 
different countries are predominantly one or the other. Or the other. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so she's from Jordan, predominantly Sunni, and she, um, but but is now, um, at, over the course of her time here in New Hampshire, she became an American citizen. Um, she, so pursued her master's, got it, and was beginning to work towards her doctorate in okay. education. And this is where we started to cross paths. And so Suzanne and I started taking a class together. Um, it was an educational law class. Ooh, fun. And this class... I can't imagine you had any rowdy debates in there. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah, that was amazing. But what cracked me up about this experience was the first day, the professor was talking about Brown versus Topeka Board oh, of Education. Okay? <laughs> Which, if you're not familiar, this is the Supreme Court case that desegregated schools in the United States. And it's Texas, right? This is Kansas. Kansas, Kansas. okay. Topeka, Kansas. So, um, so desegregated schools. So if you didn't know the specific Supreme Court case, most students who went through high school in the United States yep. probably learned about Topeka versus Brown. Or, or learned no, the segregation of schools, okay. right? They might have learned about civil rights. They might have learned about our long history with, you know, racism in this country. Sure. And all those things. Someone coming from outside of America. So a student from Jordan <laughs> is sitting in the room and she goes, where's this? Kansas. And where's that? Uh, <laughs> so it's like in the middle there. Okay. And uh, what is it? Uh, so this girl wanted to go to school, but she couldn't because she was African American. Okay. Why? Because uh, we had laws and they were messed up and wrong and that's problematic. Okay. And so, um, why? <laughs> right? And so now I'm like, okay, well, so we're in this class, and this poor woman is trying to follow a conversation about the specific law that was it, argued, yeah. you know, in this particular case, right? This is a high-level class. Like, they're not teaching civil rights history. They're no, teaching they're about not getting into the, the law. law. Yeah. They're looking at the legal arguments that are being oh, made, yeah. right? So this isn't about, this isn't about, like, whether civil, like, whether segregation, right, was right or wrong. Like, it's wrong, but how do you argue it legally, yeah, right, exactly. based on the law? Like, that's a different question. And so that's what we're getting into in this class. So poor Suzanne is sitting there. She's like, I don't know where Kansas is. I don't know what civil rights means. Yeah, the baseline. Not, like, so, so, to her credit, Suzanne is like, I need help. And that lady across the room is a history teacher. <laughs> She's like, look at that girl. I think she'll be my friend. Yeah, so we became friends. And mostly because Suzanne, like, hunted me down and was like, you're going out to coffee with me and we're going <laughs> to talk history, apparently, because I need to learn that. Oh, that's awesome. And so we went and we started this tradition of I t teach her history so that she can help get through this law class. Yep. And she can understand at least the context in which these cases are occurring. And Brown versus Topeka is just one of many, many cases yeah. that we were dissecting in this class. And, I mean, by the end of it, she had a full course in, in U.S. history. Ugh. And that was the beginning of our friendship. Um, soon, though, Suzanne has completed all these preliminary courses, yeah. and she is now ready to pursue her own doctorate. And she's getting her doctorate in education. She wants to write her lit review. And she ends up completely changing where she's going. Okay. And so um, I ended up helping Suzanne out as, like, an editor on her dissertation. And 
she did her project on the her dissertation on the experience of Muslim girls, Muslim students, young people, um, and the effect that this has on them as they are immigrating to the United oh. States. And it's, great topic. It's an amazing topic. Now I'm interested. <laughs> like, what's what does she learn? What does she talk about? I'm so curious. Yeah. So I got a chance to sit down with her, and I'm going to have her introduce herself okay. to everybody. So this is what she said. Okay. So my name is Suzanne Al-Abidi. I'm originally from Jordan. Uh, I married on 2006, and I went to the United States with my husband. And I got my four kids in the United States. Uh, I have uh, I have two daughters and two sons. And my oldest is 13. My youngest is five. Um, in 2011, I... No, first of all, I have bachelor degree in nutrition. And then 2011, uh, I started a degree. I did it in health education, health promotion. And then I pursued my EDD uh, education, so a doctoral degree in education, curriculum and instruction. Then when we finished, when I finished, we moved to Jordan, and then I got a job in UAE. So now I am a professor at Al-Ain University uh, and Department of Education. So when we were beginning her research process, one of the things that was really hard is that because Muslims have only recently in large numbers begun, and by recently I mean like the 1950s, 60s. Okay. Okay, so like mid uh, 20th century, you see a huge population of Muslims begin to immigrate to the United States and increasingly so since then. And because of that, not a lot of research on the Muslim experience has actually been done for her to base her research Makes off sense. of. Makes sense, yeah. So I asked her to explain what was known when she started doing her research. Which would probably be pretty limited, I imagine. It was very limited. <laughs> it was hard. So I started with writing my dissertation about... Um, uh, uh, obesity, children obesity in rural low-income communities, and then I ended up with another topic. So my, my dissertation was, if I want to yani, mention now the title, it's about a mother's perspective, or it's from the mother's perspective, about the factors influencing well-being, wellness of Muslim children in the northeastern United States. So, and uh, if, if I wanted to give uh, yani, a, a little background about this topic, uh, there is uh, uh, three to seven million Muslims in the U.S., okay? And uh, Muslim immigrants from 80 different countries. So most Muslims have immigrated in the second half of the 20th century and increasingly more since now, uh, September 11. But the total number of U.S. Muslims is unclear. It's estimated that there are between two to seven million Muslims in the United States. And that's why this topic, I felt it's important because there is, I can say, good numbers of Muslims in the United States. And uh, of surveyed Muslims, between 65 and 75 of American Muslims are immigrants from diverse countries across North Africa, Middle East, South Asia. And American Muslims differ in their religious practices. 
For example, 50 are Sunni, 22 are Shi'i, and 16 are, uh, we don't know exactly what they are. 75% speak English, and they are more, most of them are from Middle East. 45% of Muslims who are living in the United States have a bachelor's degree, and uh, higher, they are from higher median income than other immigrants group who came from Middle East. I'm talking about who came from Middle East. So there's very minimal research out there. Yeah, it sounds that for way. For her to tap into. And um, what was really tricky as she's trying to design this study that she's going to do is figuring out how to even study it. Because... What she's really curious about, and, and she's a mom, she's got four kids, and... And she's going for a doctorate. And she's working on a doctorate. Oh, and I need a life. <laughs> Just kidding. Good for you, Suzanne. She's amazing. But she's trying to figure out, you know, how is she even going to design a study around this? Yeah, like, how is it measurable, and what do you want it to say? Exactly. And, and you've got lots of Muslim immigrants here. She's connected because she and her family attend the mosque down in, in Manchester. Yep. And so, um, you know, so she, so she's, she's connected to some extent. Um, but how do you do this in a measurable academic way? And the other problem is she wants to really, I mean, really she was interested in researching the impact it had on kids because she's a mom and she wants yeah. to know what her, her children are experiencing. Right? Yeah. She doesn't know what they are going through. She didn't through, go yeah. through public school here. Like, she doesn't know what their life is like. Yeah. And um, so she wanted to be more informed about that. So um, she ends up looking at this from the... So she, her background is in wellness and nutrition. Okay. And so she wants to know how this transition is impacting the wellness, the well-being of these children. And she ends up looking That's at... That's a really hard thing to answer. Right? <laughs> like, how do you measure well-being? Yeah. I'm so curious. Like, what did she decide was a measurable thing? So that was really complicated, and, and she ends up doing, like, a qualitative study. Okay. okay. Well, that makes more sense. You can't go data points. Right. It's, it's tricky. Yeah. So she ends up surveying the mothers of these children because there was also issues with, like, um, minors. And, okay. And, and them being involved in the research. So, um, so she asks a lot of questions about, basically, what is impacting the wellness of these children, and this is what she found. Let's start, Yanni. Yanni, there, there were two research questions that guided me through this research, okay? The first one was, what factors influence wellness among Muslim children living in northeastern United States? So here I'm talking about the factors that impact their wellness, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then the second question was, how do Muslim mothers mediate the many challenges that impact wellness in order to support their children's well-being? So uh, if, if you want me to talk about the factor, what impacted their wellness, the, the, I found like many factors. The first one was discrimination uh, through uh, through the mothers. I 
interview the mothers uh, to talk information about their their children their children so they talked on behalf of their children so i found discrimination one factor one one of the factors that impacted their wellness then the another factor was cultural friction the third factors were factor was apprehension the fourth factor was lacking awareness of islam then the misalignment this is the five factors that impacted children's wellness in northeastern United States. So uh, within the cultural friction, like they felt like a little bit like uh, they are not doing what everyone else is doing. Okay. So, uh, uh, for example, uh, some uh, some children, uh, uh, like in my study for example, uh, they didn't go to the school dance because it was mixed gender. So yani, they found themselves like different. They are, uh, so they, uh, they feel like they are not doing what everyone else is doing. For Halloween, for example, some families, sometimes family, their families refused that their children to, to do the Halloween costume and something like that. So they felt like uh, uh, it's a big challenge for them to, con to co for, this is like, I can tell you some examples of the mother's world, like, like it's a big challenge for me to convince my kids that we don't do this for Halloween. So this is cultural reflection. So, I mean, these th three big things, discrimination, cultural fiction, and yeah. lack of understanding of Islam are serious issues that these kids are experiencing. And they're kids. Like, how is a seven-year-old supposed to navigate complex <laughs> discrimination issues? I mean, they're, they don't. They're not. And, it, I mean, they just, they're going to be present for the things that are happening, like Halloween. Right. You know, and, and try to participate as much as they're allowed to. I don't know. And you as the parent have to do somewhat of a, some simulation to helping them feel comfortable and, but at the same time, not lose your cultural identity. Identity. Who you are. Yeah. So I don't know. I saw this really funny, um, actually really sweet. This one of his, this kid's best friend was Muslim. And so he couldn't celebrate Halloween. So the, the kid dressed up in a suit. Yeah. And all of the other kids pretended to be the Secret Service, and he was the president, the one child that was Muslim, so that he could go out on Halloween with all of them. So you have all these, like, seven-, eight-year-old boys, like, pretending they have earpieces and, like, covering, and, like, the aviator glasses, like, covering the president. Yeah. It was really sweet and inclusive and in how they yeah. got a friend to, like, enjoy a, an event that they're not necessarily allowed to partake in. So. Yeah. Which is really cute. Well, and Halloween is a really good example yeah. of cultural friction. She found that many Muslim parents talked about that in her research, which is interesting. Well, it's probably the one that shows up. I mean, that and Christmas, I would imagine, are probably the two harder ones. But it definitely shows up, especially when... Wait, hang on. Do they... Is Muslim Ramadan? Yep. Yeah. So especially when they're dealing with Ramadan and... Other students don't know that that's going on. Yeah. And they're doing their fasting. Yeah, so let's hold on that because she talks about that a great deal. Okay. Because, I mean, that is an educational structure. That yeah. That is, like, not 
like, and it, it just reminds me of all of the holidays that Muslim students and, and students of other religions can't participate mm-hmm. in because our entire school structure is Christian, is designed <laughs> around Christianity. We have a week of Christmas vacation. Oh my right? gosh, We yeah. literally call it Christmas, Christmas vacation. vacation. Yeah. <laughs> we don't call it, like, winter break. Well, and it's not like other holidays coincide with Christmas week. Occasionally, Hanukkah. Hanukkah was the week before Christmas vacation. And then, like, Poor Jewish kids are sitting out, like, in class during yep. Hanukkah. I can remember that. And then you have Jehovah Witnesses who do not celebrate or recognize any of those major holidays. Yeah. It, so it's just a lot. Um Someone said this really interesting comment to me about Kamala Harris being in office now that we'll finally get the Jewish holidays off. <laughs> and I was like, it's a point. It's a point. I mean, who doesn't want more vacation days? <laughs> but good for Jewish people to have finally their holidays celebrated right. in, in public schools. <laughs> yeah. Or any, like, I mean, I think the, the, the challenge is, you know, we don't need to take every day off from school. But we do need to make sure that people feel that they can remove themselves when it is major religious holidays in their right. culture. Right. So I asked her point blank. I mean, here in New Hampshire, we have 93% of our population are white, Caucasian. Yeah. Either mostly non-religious, but uh, they practice probably Christmas. Christianity, you know, it, 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 to some extent. Yeah. So, great. Like, that is, how, like, how do kids navigate that? And what kind of discrimination are they experiencing here in New Hampshire? And her research actually ex- exposed a lot. Which oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Do you think this is pretty true across the country? So her research is, you know, like true to academia. And so she only did this, you know, this is what group. we found in New Hampshire. Okay. Um, but, and, and New Hampshire is unique, right? I mean, like I said, 93% of the population in New Hampshire is white, yep. Caucasian, Christian, most likely. And, um, and so that creates a very unique um, experience experience yeah. for somebody who's coming in as a minority you are probably the only person if you're in one of the rural communities which is basically everything outside of Manchester <laughs> right you have a very unique experience coming here and the people around you do not know anything about your have, culture have no lived experiences yeah. of your culture yeah so this is what she said yes I remember uh, one mother told me that her son, uh, w- one of her son's colleagues told him, like, go back to your country. Okay. Uh, uh, another uh, one, uh, go back to your country. Uh, one, one of them, actually, and I didn't, I, I didn't try this in my, uh, uh, in my dissertation because my, uh, my, my daughters uh, experienced that. And I wanted, like, I don't want it to be like a bias or something like that. When Trump, uh, when Trump won, like, uh, students, few students, like, oh, you will get out from our country. One, one of the mothers told me that. But did you remember Zena? And I remember her principal called us, and she said, no, they will be okay, or something like that. But my, my daughters, like, when Trump won, they were very upset. 
And they cried, oh, mama, we will, we will be kicked from the U.S. and something like that. So um, I just, I'm trying to wrap my mind around telling a seven-year-old, go back to your country. And like, what does that even mean? Like, what is their country? At this yeah, point? and what's your country, white Caucasian? Go back to England. Yeah. This actually <laughs> isn't your country. Right. I always love when I hear that from white Americans. I'm like, like, actually... <laughs> You're your land, kiddo. Get out of here. It turns out you're on native land. So if yeah. you want to start with A, you might want to know your history first. Right. Seriously. And also, like, when people say those things, I don't know. It just, young kids saying that, they've heard it somewhere else. Right. So no kids originate those things. So that's oh my coming gosh, from discrimination. Adults. Are you kidding? Like, that's a learned behavior. Ugh, that poor kid to go through it. But it's also, is it weird that there's, like, comfort to know that they're not alone, that other students who have been in, who have come to America, first-generation Muslim immigrants have also been through that same experience. So there's a community of people to support. I mean, she did talk a bit in, personally when we were researching together and hanging out at the coffee shop and things like that, that... um yeah, going down to the mosque every week was like a very meaningful. I'm sure. To have a touchstone and a community that you could feel like you can share those experiences and the trials and the yeah. uncomfortableness. Well, and one thing that she expressed in a private conversation at one point was that um, because she was Muslim, there were you know several other Muslim families in the community. And so people mm-hmm. would be like, oh, you should hang out with so-and-so. And she'd be like... Yeah, but, like, they're Shia, and I'm Sunni, and, like, just because we're both Muslim and we both wear headscarves, like, doesn't mean that we, like... <laughs> Turns out, have not going to be friends. Like, yeah, like, we don't... No, like, I can remember mean- being at Dartmouth College, and when a majority of my job was to hire uh, diverse and underrepresented minority groups. It was, like, a big piece of how we would try to attract talent to the organization, and... um. I can remember setting up an interview for someone. They're like, well, he's Hispanic, so we should definitely have him meet with this person because they're Hispanic. I'm like, just because they're the only two Hispanic people that work here doesn't mean they have to be friends. Right. (laughs) What else do they have in common? I was like, I didn't meet another white mom when I got here. And they're like, yeah, but we just want people to feel like they have a culture here. And I'm like, one person does not equate a culture. Right, right, right. I was like, I don't know that that's really necessary, but we did it all the time and it was like yeah. so uncomfortable to the point that I was like, we have to this is ridiculous. We don't have to introduce the one other like African American to the other African American that are from like one's from Kentucky and another one is from like Texas. Yeah, it's like, like they have they nothing have in common <laughs> other than that their skin color is yeah. the same. I was like, right. it's just we're making we're making connections for people that are unnecessary and you're trying to be culturally sensitive, but it's coming off really racist. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. But it's, it's not surprising because people try and help They're thinking they think they're helping. They think like I'm helping you create a bond and a friendship with someone of kin. Yeah. And it's like, no, no, no. You just basically put us in a group that now we're going to be a hate group against whoever just made us have this meeting. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so it's like they just backfired. But yeah. I get what you're trying to do. And, and it's the challenge that when you are in a majority white state, are gonna we're running into. Yeah. When we are trying to say we're, we're trying to be culturally sensitive, we're trying to, you know, trying bring to more diversity yeah. to the community, you know, all of these things, we're doing it wrong. Yeah. 
and we're doing it really insensitively and without even talking to the people or the yeah, culture that it, we're trying like to invite. To be introduced to this Yeah, person? like that we're trying <laughs> to invite to the community. I have one other Muslim friend. I don't know. Would that be helpful for you to meet yeah. them? If not, I'm just suggesting it. I also, have, I can be your friend. Yeah, you know, like, like that's I'm good. I, are you okay with me being Christian? Like, yeah. is that cool for you? We had lots of, Suzanne and I had lots of conversations about our you know religious histories and difference histories and I think that's amazing like like I grew up Christian and and that's a very different lived life experience and yet so many things are similar between Christianity and Islam and you don't know that till you talk to people and that well and you just can't build in those assumptions and I think that's what we're trying to get at with this little boy saying that or little girl like yeah classmate saying this to to this child it's like they don't know. Right. And they're learning that from somewhere. And if that's going to propel throughout and continue, yeah, that people are going to continue to say these really racist or, you know, insensitive things, we just need to start calling it out. Yeah. So the reason I became impa- interested in talking about Suzanne's research here on our podcast mm-hmm. is because... The deeper she got into her research, the more it deviated from what you might sadly expect as discriminatory comments about okay. Halloween and things like that. And I realized that this is actually a feminist issue that oh. women need to be involved in. And um, one of the things that she started to talk about and, and started to realize in her research is that young girls in particular were impacted by difference cultural differences that were not accommodated by public public schools. Okay. So I'll let it, Suzanne explain this in a second, but the you know the question that I asked her is how did this impact wellness? And one of the things that stood out to me is that young girls in particular struggled because in Islam, women don't go to co-ed, you know, in in, in predominantly Muslim cultures, like in Mm -hmm. Jordan, where Suzanne's from, if you're going to, like, a yoga class, for example. Yeah. There are no men in that class. Yeah. It's a women's It's not co-ed. It's not co-ed. You don't do that. You don't have co-ed PE classes. You're not exercising and sweating and breathing hard and wearing skimpy shorts in front of boys. And everything is gender divided in predominantly Muslim cultures where she grew up. And so what she started to uncover is that the impact that this type of stuff had not only was impacting Muslim children broadly in, an, in, in some negative ways, mm-hmm. but it also is having a unique impact on Muslim girls because they are having to wear sweatpants and headscarves yeah, in so PE class. Their cultural morality is being challenged in those moments where it's like, or yeah, like like all of their friends are wearing. It's it's not like we we forget that like Muslim kids are still kids. Like it's yeah. they're nine years old. They just want to fit in with their friends, right? But they also want to be Muslim. Well, and they want to be part of their family and their culture and, and where you come from. from. Yeah, and. And we believe in religious freedom in this country. Yeah. And so here's a girl trying to fit in, but also wear, you know, go to PE class where she has to wear a headscarf and sweatpants. Well, I think it's, you know, 
it was twenty. It was twenty nineteen when Nike started to come out with hijabs. Finally, yeah. It's like twenty nineteen. <laughs> yeah, like, like these women have been working out in hijabs that are like way hotter, right. and you just figured this out. This huge athletic brand that yeah. this was something you needed in twenty nineteen. Like welcome to yeah, the yeah. Like where have you been? <laughs> I don't yeah. know. So let's let me play what she said when I asked her what impact did this transition have on student wellness? Because the answer is broad, but I think if you pay attention to what impact it had on girls, you'll see that there's something really profound here. Okay. So here, um, um, we, we can talk about two, uh, two different themes or two different factors that impacted their wellness. When I talk about lacking awareness Islam, I can give you an example which is like a student ask a Muslim student, like, can I wear your headscarf Halloween? So, like, they don't have, uh, I will not a big idea, like, an enough idea about Islam. Muslim girls here, they cannot sometimes participate in physical education classes because they have to wear shorts and they cannot wear shorts in front of um, boys. Okay? This is one point. Another point, and this is this second point also, we can uh, also combine the misalignment and with the lack of awareness of Islam. I'm talking here about the halal food at schools. So Muslim kids cannot eat pork. Uh, meat should be portrayed in a specific way. So we have at the beginning of, uh, of the year, we have to go to school and we have to tell them that our kids, one, two, three, have to eat one, uh, four, five, six. Okay, uh, another another point that really shocked me when I interviewed the 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 the, the mothers, uh, and it's again combined the two factors: the misalignment and lack of Islam. Is when one mother told me that her son uh, didn't go to the bathroom at school because uh, in Islam we have uh, to wash the area when we use. Um, when we use the bathroom, and we have a specific thing we uh, to do that in our bathrooms, and this is not available in uh, bathrooms at schools. So the her stopped eating at. Actually, two two mothers mentioned this uh, mentioned this point, and I'm talking about two mothers or out of seven mothers, which is I think good percentage. So uh, they didn't eat at school. This is one point, and that w- this will affect their intellectual wellness. And at the same time, uh, they have constipation, severe constipation, and this really impacted their physical wellness. Another point, there is no space and no time to pray at school. Mm-hmm. And this is, again, combined two factors, misalignment and lack of awareness of Islam. So I used to go to my kids' teacher and to ask them that my my daughter has to pray at this time, this time, this time. And actually, they cooperate with us, really. They cooperated with us, and they were very nice, but there is no specific room uh, to pray. Another point, Friday. We have to go every Friday at Dohor to pray at Dohor. So this is Yani Mandri mandatory for men and boys to go. So there is no break to allow them to go and, and pray. This is, again, misalignment and lack of awareness of Islam.
For lesson plan ideas and how to teach women's history, go to our website, www.remedialhistory.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook. If you think what we're doing is needed, please consider joining our Patreon community. Through Patreon, you can sponsor a podcast with a small donation. Patrons get access to behind-the-scenes information, gear, and bonus episodes. Patreon allows you, the listener, to ensure that the shows you love continue. This episode is sponsored by our patrons, Kent and Jamie Heckel from Ohio, Leah Tanger from Connecticut, Sarah Reardon from New Hampshire, Barbara Tischler from New York, Mark Breyer from wherever his van has wandered, Jeffrey Ecker and Brooke Neva Sullivan from right here next to me. Thank you so much for your contributions to this podcast. You make it possible. She talks about a whole bunch of things in there, like um, participation in PE, which we mentioned, but she also talks about like lack of awareness and the Halloween costumes, which you mentioned yes, before. Yeah. Um, she talks about how they don't have halal food in the cafeteria, and yeah. so these kids can't eat, and there are kids not going to the bathroom, and they stop <laughs> eating because they're not getting food that they're allowed to eat, right? Their parents have yeah. said, like, you can't eat this type of stuff, and so they're not eating it. Um, so that's really concerning in terms of a health situation. Um, and then the other thing is, like, schools don't build public schools. We've almost taken separation of church and state to the point where we're, like, pro-atheism. Right. And that's still not... Yeah. That's a that's a belief system. You know, like It is a belief system, but or it's rather it's, it's a lack of belief system. Yeah, it's so going in the opposite direction. That, you yeah, know? like that's you can, you know, and so so that's a little fascinating. Um and these kids are supposed to be praying multiple times a day during public school hours. And right. So when are they supposed to do that? And I as a teacher, I know that when I have 21 students who have one need and one student who needs, has another need, it's really hard to be like, well, of course you can go pray. I'm fine if you do that. But you're going to miss out. But, like, class continues because of our school schedule that we have that I have to follow. And maybe I'm an asshole, but I don't really know how to navigate that. Well, yeah, and nor should you, which is really hard, but it's also... It's exactly that. It's exactly what you mentioned before, that separation of church and state has gone almost to the point of exhaustion where we don't allow for any religion to represent. Except Christmas. And even that has been really kind of, in in some schools, is not even represented. There's definitely schools that don't recognize Christianity or the holidays. Like, they don't celebrate Easter. There's none, like, all the things where you don't have those days off. Right. Um, And so, and that... It almost is like, what's better? What is the right thing to do? Right. Not celebrate any and say you take off the time you need right. and kids miss school. Right. Or you pause for the ones of the majority. It, I don't know. Yeah. That's and a then, good. And then the minority loses out. Like, what happened to protecting the minority? Like, yeah. That's and like, uh, that's a really hard question. And it must be incredibly hard as a parent to raise a child of a religion that is not represented in their education. Right. Yes, and I think that's a huge 
factor because while Muslim history in the United States, and granted, like, we kind of divide in public schools, we divide history classes between U.S. history and right, world, world history. history. Um, Muslim history in the United States picked up in the 20th century, and it should be taught in schools. So yeah. We should talk about this trend of Muslim immigration to the United States. There are tons of pictures of Muslim immigrants coming over in the post-World War II era that you mm-hmm. could incorporate and show, like, what these people yeah. were coming over dressed like and what they looked like and what their lives were like. I mean, Yeah, and their is, experiences were lived. Yeah. So there's a lot there. Um, but I think you're right. Like, school does not work around Islam. No. And so... Even work... In, work doesn't work in the United States. Doesn't, no, like I think about previous coworkers. I worked with several Muslim Americans at Dartmouth, and Ramadan would come up. That that is a really hard time to show up as your whole self to an office building when yeah. you're fasting all day. Yeah. So Ramadan, the dates of that holiday change, but it is weeks long. Weeks where long. People are fasting till sunset, and and then they eat with their family. Yeah. It's great. It's just, it's a holiday. It's a celebration. But it's also like a time of season for them. So similar how Christmas season is for, for most, you know, Christian Americans, you are kinder, you're gentler. There's just, there's a better patience. patience. There's just a better aura of being in the world because you're coming out with your, it's like, oh, it's Christmas season. Like, let's just be better. Yeah. That's how Ramadan is. And so when they're trying to be better and it falls in like the finals. Time, yeah, it's like the time of year, like <laughs> end of school and like the end of the semesters and people are just like at their absolute wits end because we haven't had a vacation yeah. since Christmas. Yeah, like this is not, We're not good when people. you should be fasting in US culture. No, so that must be it I mean it was challenging for the coworkers I worked with. And, you know, you try and be sensitive and eat your lunch at your desk so that they don't see you eating food. <laughs> and, like, you just try and think about ways that you're, like, would you like to go for a walk at lunch instead of eating? And they're, yeah. like, yeah, let's do that. It's, like, you try to be supportive. be supportive and sensitive. But I've never gone through something like that. I've never practiced that kind of devotion to my religion. So I don't know, but it's... Yeah. must be incredible. And then you think about their children going to school in those moments. Yeah. I can't imagine being a high schooler and going through Ramadan. Right. I know. It's crazy. When all of your peers are not. Right. I think it would be a way easier task if it was everyone was in it together. Well, so probably not surprisingly, this was something that she and I talked about in our conversation. Oh, great. And she shared that like many people were concerned about in her research were concerned about Ramadan this is what she said and another lot of examples Kelsey if I want to talk about our holidays yeah our holidays they don't have uh, they don't have break they don't have holidays for our holiday they have to go to school or they will miss the school and celebrate with us Ramadan fasting they have to fast a specific age and like uh, teachers, sometimes uh, the teachers call um, parents. Your your daughter is fasting. This will impact her. The, the the mothers had to explain to them because we are in Ramadan. They have to do this and do that. Uh, please don't allow them. Like, uh, uh, it's okay if they don't participate in physical education class. Uh, we have to explain every single thing yeah. again because of misalignment and. A lack of awareness of Islam. So, 
obviously Ramadan is problematic. And mm-hmm. one thing that I haven't shared about Suzanne is that following um, when she finished her dissertation, she and her family, and this was one of the saddest days of my life, she packed up her four kids and she and her family moved back to Jordan. No. They just became, they had just become U.S. citizens. I had helped her pass her citizenship exam. Yeah. Which, by the way, was a hilarious experience. Oh, I imagine. Because. Like, um, what they determine a U.S. citizen to yeah, know. Yeah, so, so, as a U.S. history teacher, this m- was murder. Because she was like, the, the citizenship exam requires that you know, for example, who wrote the Declaration of Independence. And so, she what? was like, okay, well, I know that it's Thomas Jefferson. Because she's really good at, like, learning she and should be, yeah. Also, that's just, like, a straight memorization question. Yeah. So she says, yeah, Thomas Jefferson. I know that. And I said, do you know who Thomas Jefferson is? Nope. Do you know <laughs> anything about him? Nope. Do you know that he owns, like, nope. Do you know what the Declaration of Independence said? Nope. Do you know? Like, she doesn't know anything about the Declaration of Independence, but she knows Thomas Jefferson wrote it, so I guess she's good. Citizen, moving on. Like, it's what so is this exam? bizarre. It should be, like... Do you know that you have to pay taxes? Yeah, no. That exam is a little ridiculous. I've read I read their questions because I was doing a trivia night with my team. And I threw a bunch of them on there. And I was like, turns out you guys are no longer U.S. citizens. Yeah, like <laughs> seriously. I mean, I, I used to require it for my seniors. Like you have to pass the exam in order to graduate in my class. It. But like it's a ridiculous exam because it's just straight memorization. If you can memorize it, it's then you're unnecessary. fine. And you move on. Like, that, like what are we, what, what is that? Like, that doesn't tell us anything. It tells us we, people can memorize stuff. Like, great. It tells us people can memorize stuff. It doesn't mean they're going to be a quality citizen that understands society and how to operate in America. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, most people should probably go through that exam. That Can that be our new U.S.? You yeah. Ha- you get your driver's license, but you also have to become a citizen every year. Yep. That's a factor. And it becomes a more advanced test every year. Yeah. (laughs) But, like, in social studies, like, we're actually teaching people to be thoughtful, engaged citizens, not, like, memorize random facts about the U.S. Constitution. Like, what is this? So, um, so I asked her, though. I said, you did all this research into the impact of this transition. Yeah. And in particular, like, a lot of the moms that she was learning from and researching from were first generation you know they had just come and so their kids a lot of times are and this was something that was repeated in not just the experience of muslim immigrants but like you know mexican immigrants yeah anyone who is first generation anybody who speaks a different language the kids oftentimes spend a lot of time navigating adult situations yeah. for the parents. And, like, think about all the situations. Like, I went to the hospital the other day with my child. He had to get four vaccines. The woman had to explain to me what the vaccines were that she was giving to my child. And, what, and granted, one of them was a flu shot. But, like, what are these things that you're giving to my child? And if I don't speak English and the doctor doesn't speak my language, well, right? They're supposed to provide you a translator. They're supposed to provide me with a translator, but a and lot of they're times. They're supposed to determine that ahead of time in advance. So medical care is a little unique, but I get what you're saying. But think um, about, like, you need to get in New Hampshire, you gotta get snow tires on because welcome. Yes. We okay, so like that's ice. a scenario. They don't have to provide you an interpreter. Like, the people who change your tires over at Wilson Tire, like, they're not. No. Like, there's a lot of trust that goes into moving to a foreign country. You have to genuinely amount. trust that the people that you are asking advice from and reserving, like, receiving services from are being honest with you 
and providing. And then when you think about the discrimination that's happening for Muslim Americans after 9-11. Yeah. How would you ever trust that people are doing the right thing for you and your family? Yeah. How do you trust that that price that they just quoted you yeah, is a or fair like price? A contractor's coming to do work on your home. Yeah. How do you even trust that they're showing up and giving you a fair deal? Right. You just have to. Right. Ugh. Or you Yeah. You so have, have such faith in humanity. Yeah. And 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 so I asked her, I said, point blank. Yeah. Was your research the reason you moved? And this is what she said. Uh, to be honest, after I finished my dissertation, I thought that I put I put my uh, my children in a difficult situation because children in this situation will have actually three identities: the American identity, Islamic identity, and identity. The third one is between these two identities. They would like at school they will like keep their. It's like they will be Muslim, but at the same time, they have to go with their friends. They have to do like, uh, celebrate your holidays. This is for children, and this will really impact them. So when I finished my dissertation, I was like, I have to go back to my king because uh, of the of all these reasons. But then when I went back, I was like, I miss Lemeth. <laughs> Very much, so much, yeah. Because people over there are very nice, uh, cooperative. Although with with all the all these misalignments, but really they cooperated with us. The cafeteria at the school, uh, the teachers. They allowed my daughter to pray. Uh, for I, I remember uh, uh, Razan. She used to do soccer, so they allowed her to to wear like legging uh, under yani, the, uh, beneath the 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 short. So they were really cooperative. So I really miss every single thing in Plymouth. So sometimes I felt like oh, this was a bad decision, wrong decision. I don't know. So it made me so happy to hear that even though it was a factor in their move to Jordan. And we actually Zoomed. She was in the United Emirates, where she's now a okay. professor. Um, she was, misses being here. Aww. And she misses hanging out at the coffee shop with me. Which, like, no offense, but I was, like, personally offended that she left. Because, like, <laughs> whatever. But <laughs> like, is it me? Is it me? Is it me you're not looking for? <laughs> the coffee shop down the street. <laughs> Kelsey single-handedly moves all the Muslims out of Plymouth. I, no, that's not the message. We are oh, sorry. <laughs> if anyone's to blame, reach out to Kelsey. Oh my God, I'm just kidding. That's really sad, and it's that's the tough thing. Like you, I think you decide where you want to try and live, and it's a foreign country. That's a huge risk you're taking for you and your family, and I can't imagine making it. And and then going back and and doing something different. Yeah, it's a lot. So I asked her a couple questions. Okay. First, what did she find in her research that was hopeful for her? And the biggest thing that she, her answer was was that in the research that she did, she found that moms mediated the differences. And so... Oh, yay moms. Yay freaking moms, right? (laughs) So, like, we don't celebrate Halloween 
but all of your friends are celebrating Halloween. We're going to dress you up as the, the president. president, right? Like, <laughs> cool. We're going to do that. Like, we can do. We can do. We that. can make that happen. We for can you. make that happen. Um, you know, and th- she had lots of examples, and I can't remember them all off the top of my head from her research, but lots of examples, and Halloween in particular, where moms figured out a way to, to make it work, navigate that situation where they felt like they were being honest and genuine um, and faithful to Islam, but also helping their kids fit in at school and among their friends um with you know like bathrooms at schools we don't don't have bathrooms that provide the proper cleansing in that is that muslims tend to use yes so moms sent kids to school with wet wipes because that was a way that they could mediate the situation um you know Having conversations with the people that prepare food at school, explaining what halal halal is, and helping <laughs> people understand Islam and their practices. Yeah. I can remember being at um, Plymouth Elementary, and um, a mom came in to really dig in about Jewish culture, mm. so that the teachers of her students knew what her children were working, and they were Hasidic Jews, so it's it was different than you know Judaism. Otherwise, broadly, right? Broadly, more popularly, um, and it was such a nice moment where she was so kind and sat with the teachers and let them ask questions, and it and the principal navigated the conversation and was like the leader of facilitating this, yeah. So that that's the children of this family could really come in and be, be like these people, even though they might not be Jewish, understand understand, it. and they're going to be respectful. Yep. And they asked all the questions that they wanted to ask. Yeah, it's like, these are the things. So, like, birthdays in a classroom. Yeah. My son will not eat the cupcake. Right. Because it's not been made in the proper kitchen and and that everything's been blessed. So, they're just not going to partake. But if you can give me a heads up that there's a birthday coming up, I can make sure that he has a cupcake. Right. That he can eat so that he can participate. Right. It's like these little moments to keep your kid included. Right. Yeah. Good to know. Good to know. It's all about partnering. And also, like, frankly, those types of, help, like, food accommodations, like, Huge. I don't think anyone here is like, yeah, you know what would be really great for my diet? Cafeteria food <laughs> from a public school. Let me, let me take that in. Well, Michelle Obama did some work on it, but still, it lacks luster. As a public educator who regularly eats in the, eats cafeteria. In the cafeteria. Not your fave? Ooh. Anyway, is someone in this. in the world that has to order their lunch instead of eating where food's provided? <laughs> I might take cafeteria food <laughs> over your own cooking. Yeah, <laughs> pretty lazy. So, I mean, um, I'll take square pizza day any day. <laughs> day was always bomb. So, I finally asked her, I said, if you could fix one thing in public schools. Because yeah. there's a lot of things here. There's Halloween, there's cupcakes, there's, you there's know. scenarios discru- on scenarios. There, yeah, it, there's a million things. There's jobs and gym class, right? Like where, like, where do you even start, right? So, I said, okay, Suzanne, you're queen of the world for a day. And I really should be referring to her as Dr. Elabidi, but she's Suzanne Yeah, I'll to scold me. you later. Okay, thank you. You can fix one thing. You're queen of the world. What would you change? And this is what she said. I, I recommend, like, if, yani, if they have one, like, I will, I will say, yani, Islamic class, 
يعني سو سو اول تشيلدرن ويل بي فاميليار ويل نو ا ليتل بيت اباوت اسلام يعني نوت تو ماتش بت ا ليتل بيت سو سو اور كيدز ويل نوت بي اسكت اول ذا تايم واي يو ار كفرينج يور هير كان اي يوز يور هيد سكارف از ا هالوين كاستوم سمثينج لايك ذات ذس ويل هيلب ا لوت will help the teachers, the administrators, the students themselves. This will help our kids, Muslim kids, not to be asked all the time, not to feel themselves like uh, strange or weird. I think this is, يعني, this will, يعني, will help in everything. If you talked about discrimination, if you talk about lack of awareness, if you talk about misalignment, now يعني, they will understand what is Islam so they can do what this these kids need i mean she could have converted everyone to islam <laughs> i can't like okay that's very nice Suzanne. but you could have gone for gold gone for gold girl <laughs> like you're the queen lady i don't think and queen elizabeth was like oh no <laughs> what if everyone just gets educated <laughs> i hope you take a class on christianity thank you thank you uh, no she was like that was a really the interesting na- British accent, by the way. I don't know. I've had some wine. But <laughs> I'm like, good for her, Suzanne. That's very polite. But I would have gone, like, everyone's Muslim, welcome to my world, and then, like, dropped some Biggie music. <laughs> or Jay-Z. They both would have fit for there. Anyways. Oh, my gosh. But it was obviously just, like, a huge highlight to talk with her. Yeah. And so, in her honor, I want to teach a little bit of Muslim history. Okay. I'm in. Yeah, I like Muslim history. Okay. I like Suzanne, so I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) Woohoo! So, in the Middle East and North Africa, female infanticide prior to Muhammad was commonplace. And infanticide being um, killing babies when they're born. And so, you know, just being left out and and starved to death or freezing to death. And um, Islam changed that. That was a very big issue in Islam that was addressed in the early empire. Female scholars were very common and respected. Um, Muhammad taught that there was no difference in faith or worth based on gender. And so this makes huge room for female contributions to affairs in almost all arenas and especially in spirituality. And that stands in really big contrast to Christianity. Um, the first convert to Islam is his wife, Khadija. She was a businesswoman. She was basically the money that backed him. And in that time, it makes sense that women would back him. I mean, in times of scarcity, for example, baby girls or young girls would be buried alive to try to provide for the rest of the family. Like, girls were seen as worthless. And Muhammad changes that. Um, So, for example, it was said on a judgment day, buried girls would rise out of their graves and ask what crime for which they were killed. This is part of the Quran that he writes in, basically. Like, what have you been doing? And and this guilt trip that he basically puts um, the the Arabian community in is is very important in establishing some basic rights to live. Um, Part of his legacy is that he ends this infanticide. So I think that's really, really incredible. Khadija becomes the first person that he reveals the Quran to. And so if you're not familiar with the history of the founding of Islam, um, Muhammad has these, in, in early 600, has these revelations in the wilderness that um, become what will eventually be the text of the Quran. So these ideas, these 
philosophies. And, um, and so those get written down. He tells those revelations to Khadija first. Muhammad and Khadija live in the city of Mecca and um, they have to leave. He begins preaching and they have to leave Mecca. And so they move to Medina, which is a relatively neighboring city to, to Mecca. And um, they, the supporters that he has go with him. And so there's this sort of like community of Muslims that, that follow. And um, eventually, some years later, they return to Mecca and they conquer that region. And this is sort of the beginning of the warfare that um, the, you know, the Muslim community has to do in order to solidify this religion, this faith, and, and in, to some extent, save you know, the lives of female babies. So obviously Muhammad and Khadija have a lot of followers and one of them was this woman named Nusayaba. She was from one of the tribes that joined him in Medina very early. Um, so she was an early convert to Islam and she became a companion of his. Um, she was is most remembered because she took part in the, the Battle of Uhud in which she carried a sword and shield and fought against the Meccans. She shielded the Prophet with her own body from enemies during the battle and she even sustained several lance wounds and arrows as she cast herself in front of him to protect him. So she's literally using her body to protect him. Um, so that's pretty incredible. Um, after she sustained her 12th wound, she fell unconscious. And the first question that she asked when she woke up was whether M Muhammad was safe. So, I mean, she is literally the bodyguard to Muhammad. And so I think that one thing that's really challenging when you're thinking about Islam is thinking about Islam when it was founded and in Muhammad's lifetime and Islam and, and the particular challenges of that time, right? Battling female and family aside right like you would think that those are such like basic things but but in reality like that's where things were at and he's got women that are his closest confidants that are his bodyguards I mean this is incredibly important um there are lists of women, and we've provided resources um, for people to check out about some of these badass women that accompanied him. Koala, uh, she was another contemporary of his. Um, she participated in the Battle of Yarmouk um, against the Byzantines, and according to stories about her, um, she had skills and fighting abilities. She was um, one of, she was in, uh, she was given a lot of credit from some of the generals at the time. Um, and, and so this is, like, she's incredible. So he's got women fighting along with him. Um, Muhammad marries uh, his friend, um, Abu Bakr, who is a prominent Muslim. He marries his daughter, Aisha. And Aisha is interesting. Um, she, is the, she is his wife. Um, she is also... Um, one of the prominent scholars after he passes away. Um, she, Aisha was one of the wives that he had that had not been previously married. Uh, most of the other wives he that he took on were women that had lost their husbands in war. And so she's the daughter of Abu Bakr and becomes betrothed to Muhammad to sort of solidify this relationship. Um, so when she reaches puberty, she becomes his wife. And um, 
when Muhammad was not around, he said that if there's any questions about Islam, please ask my wife Aisha because she is such a um, faithful person. And so she becomes basically the main source of information after he dies about him. But this gets into one of the modern controversies about Islam, which is the fact that Muhammad took multiple wives and Khadija and Aisha are just one of, or two of many women that he uh, had his wives. Yeah, I mean, I've seen sister wives. <laughs> Different religion, but yeah. it just looks like a lot more people for for housework, which I'm all in for. <laughs> do you want to be my sister wife, Kelsey? <laughs> no. <laughs> I do not want to do your dishes for you. Can you just come Same. over and be my bitch? No! <laughs> I got my own dishes, woman! Get out of here! Get your own sister wife. I already recruited you. <laughs> no. All right, so... Um, but, no, in, so in all seriousness, I asked her what she thought about it. Because I said, there, like, people are going to... And my students in particular are like, okay, so wait a second. Men can take multiple wives in Islam? Like, explain. So this True. is what she said. Yeah, he, yani, men in our in our religion, they can get four wives. But any four reasons, Kelsey. Yani, if I'm sick, sometimes, sometimes, some men... Like, uh, they like to have one wife. But, yani, yani, to be yani, honest, yani, if, if I'm sick, if I'm not doing yani, what does he like, if I'm not like him, he can get another wife. If we like spend all our life fighting and we don't have the same uh, thinking, and yani, he can get another wife. But for Prophet Muhammad, he got uh, many wives for different reasons. Yani in Quran, you can find that. Like, he married this wife because of one, two, three. He married the second wife because this and this. So not just for fun. If, like, no man can actually provide equally for multiple wives, so they don't know anybody who's done it. But there's know? so many things I have, I struggle with with different religions where people take the text so literal. Yeah. And they live so literally with that text. And then there's others where they're like, well, that's interpretive. Yeah. And so I'm always, like, struggling with what's what are you allowed to interpret? Right. And what are you not allowed to interpret? Right. And that's where I get stuck in and religion. Where do, you, where do you pick up on inherent sexism? That's yeah, that. like, exactly. It's like, wait a minute. <laughs> Was that just the time period or is that accurate? Do right. we have to do that? Well, you're actually getting to something that's super important here, which is that, um... Different, ta I mean, it really has to do with historiography because Muslims know more than Western people like ourselves that there are lots of different Islamic texts and. Um, just like there are lots of different books within the Bible, different preachers who interpret things differently, and um, the problem with all of these having all of these different texts is that they sometimes disagree with one another. And in uh, Islam, there, that's no different. Um, the Quran, for example, is very, you know, creates a huge space for women. Um, it says that um, heaven was at a mother's feet. And there are, but, but then by contrast, there's this separate set of texts which was made in the 8th and 9th centuries. Um, it's called the Hadith. They're a collection of documents that are written way after Muhammad is dead that demean and subjugate women. And for example, it says, men, your wives are your tillage. Go to your tillage any way you want. 
And then it goes on to say, men are managers of the affairs of women because Allah has preferred men over women and women were expended of their rights. And so, like, like that's pretty point-blank uh, sexism and, and misogyny. And, um, and, and, and there's this, in the Hadith, there are all these documents that um, show fascination with female virginity and fear of female sexuality. And um, it's hard because the Hadith documents are religious texts. And so, um, you know, there, there's even one that rewards um, men, good men in heaven, um, that with a horde of virgins, which I'm sure many people have heard of. But again, that text comes out of the Hadith. It doesn't come out of the Quran. And then, of course, you know, questions that I have is the Quran makes it very clear that women uh, are equal to men in spirituality. And so if men are getting hordes of virgins as rewards in heaven, well, what are the virgins getting? Because they also followed all the rules outlined in the Quran, right? So it's just, it's a little, um, you're right, like the back and forth between the texts is is not okay. But I think we as Westerners really need to be aware, just like in Christianity and Judaism and other religions, the contradictions in the texts also have to do with who's writing the texts. And um, I think that, you know, feminist Muslims really need to take issue with certain texts in hadiths that have been accepted by all male Muslim scholars in the centuries after Muhammad's death not, you know, necessarily the inspiration behind that. Although I'm not going to sit here and justify every word of the Quran because I am, have not read it. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.